On this episode of Stories Behind the Grind, listen to my conversation with Josh Lewis, founder of Dorks Delivered, one of Australia's fastest growing IT companies. We discuss how to stop trading time for money, whether to build your brand or build your business first, and how to start automating your business, whether you're well-established or just starting out. My name is Aidan Vokolo, and here you will find business strategies, tips, and tactics that you can incorporate not only in your own venture, but your life, to help you simplify and strategically grow, scaling up the impact you're having in this world. Listen as I talk to creators, innovators, and game changers on what it takes to build an impactful business, uncovering their insights, strategies, and tips to help you increase profitability and develop a thriving team culture. Welcome to the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. Josh, welcome to the Stories Behind the Grind podcast. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me here. Josh, you're the founder of Dorks Delivered, which provides end-to-end IT solutions for small to medium enterprises with a focus on streamlining systems, operation management, and implementing high-tech solutions to ensure integrity and accountability of all internal systems. And you were recently awarded Australia's fastest growing managed service provider. Tell me what drew you to entrepreneurship and what was life like for you growing up? Great question. I'm lucky enough to say I've got a fantastic family uh, full of engineers and teachers. And overall, the thing that's drawn me to be able to be an entrepreneur and ultimately entrepreneurship would be, I don't even know, hey, to be honest, it picked me. I didn't pick it, it picked me. When I was 12, I was given an opportunity to earn some money uh, making these number plate bracket things. It's the most boring thing in the world. And uh, anyway, I found that the process that I took to make them was results-based instead of per hour-based. And that ultimately put me into a position that I ended up growing this to a spot with the automation that I put in place, that I had people that I was had working for me by the time I was 15. I had two other friends that that quit their trolley job, pushing them around. And uh, at that stage, I didn't, even, I didn't know what an entrepreneur was. I was just this guy that thought this would be better, giving my friends some more money. I was making some more money and everyone won. So this giving mentality, did that come from mum or dad or was it something you learned elsewhere? Mum and dad are both very giving people. Mum, as a teacher, has always been a, a nurturer, I guess. Dad had a, it would have been better if he had a better upbringing, but didn't have the best relationship with his parents. And so made sure that he had a great relationship with all of his kids. And so I'd say I couldn't pick one or the other. I've been lucky enough to have two fantastic folks. Well, it's great that you had uh, yeah two positive influences. Now you were off doing your entrepreneurship thing, I guess, finding where automation could save you a lot of time. What were your siblings doing at the same time? Did they follow the same route that you've gone into or did they follow a different path? Out of the five of us, my eldest sister, which hates me calling her that, is 15 years older than me, and she hates me saying that even more. (laughs) She's an engineer. My brother, 13 years older than myself, also an engineer. My sister, 11 years older than myself, a teacher, (laughs) followed in mum's footsteps. Dad's an engineer. (laughs) Myself, engineering background, then became a business owner. My younger sister decided to do something completely different in design. But I would say... Overall, most engineers have a problem, and I've got this problem, and that is where you have a 90 to 95% planning, 5% execution, and you want to make sure that execution is done properly. And most engineers, most Australians, we're lazy. We're so lazy, we will spend more time automating something to make sure we never have to do it again. A great example would be, and this is something that I didn't know that I was doing or inherently part of me until... Until my brother brought it up to me, actually, I was building a device so that I was able to sit on the lounge that I had in my bedroom and I had a remote, could turn your TV on, pretty standard, yeah? Mm -hmm. The same remote, I could turn the fan on. Now, it's not out of this world crazy, 
But then you could also turn the strobe light on, the fog machine on, and any of the other normal stuff you have in your bedroom as a, as a teenage boy. What I wanted to do, though, is set it up so when I click this button, if someone knocked on the bedroom door, I wanted it to set someone to press this button. It would unlock the door. Again, a little bit harder, but easy enough. But then I also wanted to have it so when someone came in, it then shut the door. And I was going through speaking to my brother, an electronic engineer, 13 years older than myself, as I was saying, and I said, this is how I'm looking to do it. These are the schematics. This is why I'm looking to go through these steps. And this is how I'm going to do it. And he said, okay, so how long is that going to take you to make? I said, oh, I don't know. When I, after making the PCB and doing this and getting electronics and doing some testing, some R&D work, might be 100, 150 hours. And he said, so how many times could you have opened and closed that door in 150 hours? That's when I realized, yes, okay, automation is awesome. But don't automate something that doesn't need to be automated. So I guess in answer to your question, I've been lucky enough to have influences of automation my whole life. Did I automate that door? No, I didn't. But the journey sometimes is worth more than the execution and the final product. And that's where I found automating the door would have been great because of the knowledge I would have gained with actuators and all that sort of stuff as a young teenager, where if I hadn't and I just walked up and opened the door, I wasn't learning anything. And that goes to say, it goes for anything within my life. Where we are at the moment, everything you, you, you see around here, everyone, you see, see that? Everyone you seeing? Yeah? No? Oh, it's just us. Oh, bugger. <laughs> um, I've built it all myself. Everything you see I made. Where we're standing, we're sitting, we're, I made. And it's not because it was the most efficient way of doing it, but it was the best way to learn a different experience, a different trade, a different walk of life. And that allows for you to automate and understand what needs to be automated in different walks of life. Yeah, so, so it's really, it's, it's been about getting that ground of knowledge, I guess, in your early upbringing about automating, not really in a business sense per se, but sort of expanding from that into other senses, drawing that all in where you are now and being able to do that in the businesses that you're part of and that you run. Mm -hmm. including your own business, to make things sort of more simple and effective and efficient. Yeah. Well, getting back to the number plate thing, like uh, I, that was a full manual process. I was getting $6 a number plate. It was taking me an hour and a half to make one. And that was great. As a 12-year-old, no one else was getting that money. But when I started investing into my tools and automating the process, and I wasn't even calling it that, I just sort of looked and went, I'm getting $6 for something that I'm making. The natural habit is I want more money. So let's make this faster. But I also had a quality assurance process that I needed to adhere to. So you need to make it properly, not just faster. That's when I started automation with Lego Mindstorms Robotics, put this stuff together so it had like a little tray thing that went along and the bolts went up and the lights went on. I'll have to see if I can find a photo to show you. It went along and the end result was instead of making one in an hour and a half, I was making 10 in an hour. So I increased my income by 15 times by reinvesting into my tools. Something needs to change with the mentality of all businesses, especially in Australia, is don't trade time for money. Can you imagine the roads, the M1? What would happen if they were told they're getting paid the same amount for doing a section of road, regardless of whether it takes one day, one month, one year, or 10 years? It would be done really quickly, as long as the quality assurance is put in place. And I didn't know that that was sort of the grounding understanding of business and what will became a core belief and core practice that I have in my business for me at that stage. But as time's progressed, I've seen it is absolutely something that every business needs to change and do. You need to make sure that your offering has a high value. 
what would your recommendations be for those business owners that I guess in that current sort of methodology of trading time for money, how would you advise them to transition from a time for money sort of process into more of a results-driven yep. way of doing business? The best answer is scenario-based. You tell me a scenario, you tell me a business that you think can't be changed and I'll work out a way to change it. I guess that's the beauty of having an engineering background is you kind of, you're told the impossible and you try and work it out. Like a, a good example would be private health, a doctor, they get paid per hour or paid per, per, paid per appointment. Why are they paid to keep you sick pretty much? If they keep you sick, you keep coming back and keep paying them. If that industry was changed and they were paid to keep you healthy, they would have less appointments, more leisure time, be more interested in uh, personal development, advancing their knowledge, and they'd have everyone that is taken care of on a subscription basis healthy. Doesn't it sound like a good idea? It does, yeah. As opposed to what we're paying at the moment, you get sick, you go to the doctor, if it's private health, getting what $80 or more you're spending to see this guy that then says, try these tablets, didn't work, come back next week. Okay, no worries, come back next week, another more money, more money. I would much prefer not have that downtime. And that's what it comes down to for businesses. If you're in a professional services industry, if you need to get audited and if you're an accountant, sorry, and you're one of your clients get audited, you're in a position where you then have, that they have downtime. They have all these costs that are associated with that. If you're running an IT business like myself and the businesses that you're supporting have downtime because their technology goes down, someone needs to be held accountable. That's going to be costing that business, depending on the size, hundreds, thousands, or hundreds or hundreds of thousands of dollars or more. The end goal though, that the end result shouldn't be that that's a business's problem. That should be the provider's issue and they should be holding those accountability practices. Anyone and everyone can have this same model and ecosystem if you think enough about what the result is. How many different marketing companies are out there? There's so many, so many marketing companies. Everyone can hold a masterclass and you can be this guru. Everyone says, oh, I've had a business and I've got a book. Does that make you the leader in your industry? Probably not. Most of the time when you have a look and you, you dive just a little bit deeper past that person and past the persona, you have a look at the businesses that they've ran and they're not that successful. And that goes for a lot of business advisors. I'm going to say this, Gary V, I love. What's the name of Gary V's marketing company? VaynerMedia. Yep. And how popular is it versus his brand and persona he's created for himself? Do you think his brand and persona is what he's selling or is his company allowing for him to elevate his brand and persona? Because if he didn't have the company, he wouldn't have his brand and persona. Correct. If he has the company, he's going to elevate the amount of speaking classes. He doesn't go around talking about he's going to help everyone out with their marketing. He's just do it. Don't let your dreams be dreams. He's the guy that sits that on stage. He's the Tony Robbins, but more millennial, <laughs> in my opinion. I'm saying that with full confidence that I love his work. <laughs> it's it's uh, not, nothing against him at all. But it, what comes first? Is he great at business or is he great at telling people how to be great at business? Great at business first. I hope so. But there's so many marketers out there that are selling things that are just snake oil. And that's where if you went to a marketer and they said, I'm going to have a look at whatever your, 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 your current revenue is, your current goals, and work with you to increase that. You could be a restaurant and they might look at the amount of tables in your table layout and say, let's make this more efficient. You've got 100 tables here. We could change the 100 tables by moving them around a little bit and get 120 tables in here. What's that going to change? It's going to change your capacity, but is that going to change the amount of people that come to your restaurant? Maybe, maybe not. 
if you're able to then change the amount of people that come to the restaurant and you're able to show the results driven of uh, uh, the, the results that have been achieved from your efforts and see that the restaurant is now turning over 20% more because you have 20% more tables. Awesome. And then if they're taking 50% of a 20% profit that did not exist before of the profit on the 20%, they're winning, you're winning, everyone's winning, but so many people just sell something that is non-tangible to people like they are this Wizard of Oz guy behind the curtain saying, I'll get you more clicks. You would have been called before on the phone about becoming number one on Google, yeah? I've gotten a few emails. Um, yeah. Or, yeah, a few emails saying, you know, I'll, I'll do your SEO for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, S- send me a, you know, tell me a bit more about your business and I'll go back to you with a quote. Yeah. And you've never had a call? No, 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 no calls. Okay, I, I get calls and I get the emails. And uh, I find them hilarious. <laughs> I find them hilarious because if they were doing really well with what they're selling, they wouldn't need to be sending the emails or phone calls. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. If they were results-based, they would be the top of Google and they wouldn't need to be worrying about any of that. And that's what every business needs to change around so that if you're results-based, you're not trading time for money anymore. If you're the top of Google and someone searches for you, it's very easy. You're not looking for the low-lying fruit. You're not sending up bulk emails. You're able to very easily tune in and say straight away, bang, top of Google. Uh, you, you're going to be getting high, high authority. People are interested in spending a lot of money. I guess people from a business context, um, you know, clients aren't looking to pay for your time. They're looking to get a result to solve a problem that they're facing. Yeah. And so if you can best communicate what result you deliver, yeah. then you know, that, I guess that's how you then transition from a, you know, trading time for money to trading, a, this is the result we'll give you, and this is how we'll put a pricing structure around that result. It becomes much more client-driven than provider-driven. Absolutely. And you can flip industries on their head. A lot of people that we speak to that have had uh, traditional IT providers look at IT as an expense. They go, oh, the, the, the IT people, are we going to pay them per hour or something like that? Where for us, as soon as we've had the discussion and they've made the decision to go with us, we very rarely lose a client. And frustratingly for them, it's mostly because of situations either outside of their control or poor management that's led them to uh, become bankrupt or something like that. Nevertheless, for not IT providers, there's a lot of cowboys out there. And that, that's why I thought, let's change the industry that I'm in. I know the voodoo that I do. And the problem that I had was I would go into a business and if I was charging per hour and it took 10 hours for someone else to fix a problem and one hour for me to fix a problem, how do I justify charging someone 10 times per hour? They're not going to even look at us. Mm. Yet, even if we did and it took us only one hour to fix it, they would be up and running with nine hours less downtime. It would be so much better for their business, but it doesn't make sense to charge like that. So that's why we changed everything around and said, let's charge a set price per month and offer the guarantee. We spoke to all the clients and did a bunch of research on what businesses want out of their IT provider. They want fast response. They want to know that their systems are up and running like a light bulb. When your light bulbs don't work and you have to go find a candle, it sucks. And that's the same with IT. You don't want to come into the office and go, oh, it's not logging in today or something's not working or this isn't working or the printer isn't working. If if you know everything's going to work and then you know you have a high level of uptime, that's when you can start talking about the cost of downtime. If you're running a business with 100 employees and you said, I can afford to have four hours with the whole business down at the cost of paying 100 employees and the cost of losing out on the revenue that could be coming through for us entering everything in from over that four-hour period, if that's a cost that you're willing to incur, then we create a plan around that, that that helps you guys out. 
if you're a smaller business and you have you're a single operator or something like that, you go, oh, I could be down for 24 hours. It doesn't bother me that much. Then we work around that to make sure that it has the same benefit to all businesses. The price that we charge isn't the same for a, a 200 person business as it is for a single person business because a single person's business's objectives are completely different to a larger business. And if they have downtime, they could probably just go to McDonald's for their laptop and sort it out if, if their internet's off or if their laptop's down, they could probably just log in on their phone with zero, whatever they're doing. But when you start having your business rely on mission critical infrastructure, it goes down and it's costing you lots of money. That's when you want to make sure your IT provider is giving you accountable uptime where they're financially backing what they're doing for you. If something goes down, you're pointing the gun at one phone number, one email address, you're calling them up, you're strangling them if you know where they are, and you're going in there and you know exactly where you're pointing all your anger and you'll know that it's not costing your business the downtime if, if, as long as it doesn't go outside of that agreement. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I guess IT downtime is, is one of those things that it's great when it's working and everything's going mm. you know, smoothly, but it's, it's when things don't work that you really do feel it. And you know, mm. there's a lot of pain involved when, when systems go down or even when systems slow down. Mm, that's right. And when they go down, it's great. You know that it's gone down and you know how to fix it. When it slows down, that's when, when you really see the boys from the men. You're able to, if you've got the right systems in place, uh, and uh, I hate keeps breaking myself, but uh, Dorks Sullivan has, uh, we're able to see if Outlook opened up three seconds slower today than it did yesterday. And so if you said, oh, the computer seems slow, what we've seen using this data is that sometimes it is the computer and sometimes it's because it's the end of the month and you need to get something in. And it just seems slower. It's just some days things just seem slower to people. But you look through the data and you say, okay, it isn't actually slower, or it is, and sometimes it is. And you're able to see that and back that up and go, okay, let's dive into why this is occurring. It's frustrating, though. It's it's something that shouldn't be the case. We've been using technology for a a number of years. It's not just just coming out and about. And uh, it's something that should be have some more solidity to how it's working. Yeah, definitely. Going back to the automation side of things, what recommendations would you give for business owners to if they don't have a lot of processes that are automated in their business and they're doing things you know manually and things are taking more time and there's a limit to how many customers or clients they can serve? What would you recommend as a starting point for them to start to consider to start to give themselves more time? either in a family sense or even just to work on the business instead of always be being bogged down in the business? I would say if you're just starting out in business, you've got a huge advantage to if you've been in business for a while. So if you've been in business for a while, the best way to make sure that you make the most of your time is work out what is important to you first. If your family's important to you and that's why you got into business, write down and schedule time aside for them, knowing that you either have or do not have the ability to give them that time. So you may go, I really want to see my kids ballet or footy class or lesson or whatever the case is, but schedule that time and put that aside first. If that goes to the level of making a holiday or putting a holiday appointment aside to make sure you do that, put that in the list of I'm going to do it, not in the list of I'm going to do it later. It's like later never comes as the saying goes. Once you know the time that you want to spend on those things that are important to you, the downtime and the relaxation, then after you've done the family, if that's, if that's your number one priority and that's not the case for everyone, but that, if that is what it is, then think about what you would want to have in your own life, in your own time. And maybe that's you, you make model aircraft or you do whatever it is that you do, you're, you're horticulturist on the side or whatever it is. 
if that's what you want to do, how many hours do you want to spend doing that? The moment you have those elements sorted, you'll create an equilibrium and more balance in your life. But you'll be able to work at how many hours you need to shave off what the processes are that you're doing. The next step, this is the big one that shouldn't take that long and it sounds like a big step until you actually start doing it. Open up Excel or Google Sheets. I know, scary stuff if you don't like Excel. Watch out. Google Sheets. Yeah. <laughs> Look out, Brussels sprout. <laughs> then have a column and write tasks I do. Very simple. And think about every task you do. And you might only get five tasks. You might get 500. When I first wrote this list and I didn't just sit there and continue to write this, I had 650 items that came out of things that I knew that I did or processes that I was doing within the business. And I wrote this and I went, fire out, that is too many. And the way you do it is you write out a few tasks and then the first column, the tasks you do, the next column, who else can do these tasks? The next column, do I need to do these tasks? Are you doing like, you need to have the data. You can't make a decision unless you've got the data to make a decision. There's a tool that we use called Rescue Time, and it's free for everything I'm explaining here. You install that on your phone and install that on your computer, and you're able to see where you spend your time on the computer. And you'll soon see that when you want to get those hours in your week to see your kids, see your family, and do your hobbies, you might realize very quickly the amount of time that you're spending watching TV, being in useless meetings, and surfing around on social sites. When you see that trend, you'll be like, wow, why am I doing this? People sit there scrolling. And I'm one that uh, took control of the situation. I was on there for maybe about two and a half, three hours a week. And I thought, far out, that's ridiculous. That's way too long, way too long. And so I cut it down to about 30 to 40 minutes a week. And I'm comfortable with that. Now, three to four hours a week, that's not terrible. You talk to some people, they spend three to four hours a day on social media sites. And then they're the same people that say, oh, I've only had a few more hours in my day. So work out what your day is to work out what you need to automate and then put a time next to that same column in Excel and go, how long am I spending on this? Once you start doing this, and this is great for an established business owner that is wearing many hats because you can very quickly schedule out and categorize what are accounting tasks you're doing what are marketing tasks, sales tasks, the stuff when you're in the trenches. So if you're a bakery and you're there making these pies or whatever you're making, that's when you're in the trench, not when you're marketing how awesome your pies are or why you are different to something else. When you're in the trenches and you're doing the technician's job, as I would call it, that is something you can outsource very quickly and easily. And that is something that is the hardest thing for business owners that are single man operators or have just brought on a few employees to do. They freak out. They go, oh, you're not doing it right. Yeah, that's not the way you make the pie. You, you make the pie like this. What it comes down to, though, if they're making 80% right, and that's something you're spending 10 hours a day on, five hours, it doesn't matter, 10 hours a week on, and they're doing 80% right, you've now got eight hours free that week to go do whatever you want, even if it's not spending time with your family and it is on the social sites. Go nuts. If, if, that's, if that's where you love spending your time. But you are able to capture some of that time back where you didn't have before and know where you need to put that time. And if you need to spend the other 20% critiquing, that's when documentation comes in. I feel like I've been speaking a lot. Yeah, I guess, um, how did you transition from being, you know, back in the early days of Dorks Delivered, going from a, a sole operator to where it is now? I think you've got 20 to 30 staff at the moment, going from the man that was doing it all to making that transition to sort of being the 
technician, as you call it, being the one that sort of runs the operation as opposed to one just being in it all the time? Yep. So I would say I was the major cog in the business and now I own the major cogs in the business. This is the way I'd describe it. I don't, I'm not, I, you know, I can go on holidays if I want. I'm able to travel and see my family, see my friends. Being an avid workaholic and that being a big interest of mine, uh, I, I'm going to compare myself to Elon Musk there. Yeah, I know. How cool is that? Only because we both sleep in our office. I love working. I love seeing the results. And so it's not work for me in that it's my hobby. And I do other things as hobbies as well, but I love seeing the results of what I do for business owners. And every day is different. What changed me and transitioned me? I started doing IT because mum had a few friends that had IT problems when I was uh, in my, what do they call them now? Tweens? Tweens? That's your tween? That's a thing, isn't it? That's yeah, early, uh, you know, just just before your teens. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So I was a tween. Yep. Oh, so hip. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when, when I was a tween, I was uh, repairing people's computers back in the Windows ME days, which if you Google, they try, Microsoft tried to forget that that ever existed. But I, I was there fixing problems and I was lucky enough having a father that had an IT-based business in the very early 90s. So I was three or four years old when I had my first computer. And hence being 10, 11, being able to fix people's problems. What allowed me to transition was I ran out of time and I hated doing certain tasks. The best people to employ are the laziest, most active people in the sense that if you are too lazy to do something, you're not going to do it or you automate it or you shift the way that you do the task. If I didn't want to open the door in the bedroom, I would shift the way that I did it by learning, upskilling, and making it a different adventure, a different way to walk towards that same problem. Now, I automated a door. That is not necessarily the best thing to do, but it allowed me to go on a different path. What I would say for business owners that are looking to do it, what don't you like doing in your business? And then get rid of that first. I did not like bookkeeping. So I use the skills that I've got. And I built a system that allowed for me to have the technicians that were working with me, who I was at that stage doing all the bookkeeping manually, which is what happens with a lot of business owners. They go, they, they get into being in a business, they go, this would be great. I love doing this. I love doing IT, or I love cooking cakes, making cakes, or decorating cakes, or taking photos, whatever the case is. You love doing that thing. And then when you grow, and then you bring someone on, and then you're managing them, and then you're managing their time, and then you're doing payroll, and you're doing bookkeeping, and all these things happen, and then you're no longer doing the thing you love doing, and then you lose passion. If you're able to automate those tasks, you don't lose the passion and you're able to continue to work and continue to do what you love doing. So write down the things, everything, write, look at the things you don't like doing, work out how you can stop, how you can remove those. I got to a spot where I was freaking out. This is 2007, 2009. I had 2007, I started the business, read a bunch of stuff that I could get on GST and everything around what I could do to make sure that I was doing everything right by the government. But I was too scared to submit my bass. I didn't want to do it. I was too freaking out, uh, freaking out because I, I did not want to submit it. And the government go, you've done that wrong, little one. Wow, shit. Okay, whoops. So um, I didn't submit it. And then it was the thing that I was freaking out the most about. Two years of not submitting my bass, running a business. I was scared. I was like, oh, I'm going to get ordered. I'm going to get I'm so in trouble. And it was like handing your homework to, in two years late. I was freaking out. I got a bookkeeper in and spoke to them and said, hey, we can get this sorted get everything sort of start off with and then it'll just cost you a set price per month. I said, brilliant. No worries. They're working on the same business model I am, set price stuff. 
And that means that I know what that's going to be costing. I've got knowledge behind that. And then I'm able to not have that stress and that completely relax. So work out what you don't like doing. If you love doing books, freaking weirdo, that's fine. That's cool. People love doing it. <laughs> Some people are in the accounting industry and absolutely love it, hypothetically. <laughs> but that wasn't for me. I love numbers, but I didn't like the concern that I was going to do something wrong that came back and bit me. Touching on mindset, I guess, you seem quite confident now and outgoing. Was that always the case? Or is that something you've learned over time? That is a skill that I have learned. Absolutely. I found that while I was at school, I was bullied quite heavily. So I, I was in Melbourne is what, where I started my schooling and primary school years. Lots of friends. Start, we all started school together. We all freaked out together. We are all, uh, you know, all peas in the pot and all, all new. And then we moved from Melbourne to Brisbane. Two weeks after we moved from Melbourne to Brisbane, my sister and I were riding around on our push bikes and um, she had a brain injury. She fell off. I saw her hit the tree and blood coming out of her ear and I was freaking out. I didn't know what to do. I rode my bike home as fast as I could to see mum. Dad was at work at this stage. See mum and said, Amy's Amy's in trouble. Amy's in trouble. I said, no, no, it's fine. I said, get in the car now. We're going to get in the car now. And got in the car, went there and I saw ants crawling in her ear. And I was like, it freaked me out. It was the most horrific thing that I'd seen. And went to hospital, declared legally dead three times. I saw then the next most horrific thing that I'd seen. That was her convulsing vomit going everywhere out of pipes or in her throat and everywhere else and uh i just burst out crying i couldn't couldn't handle it and that that was me as a 10 year old kid seeing my little little sister the only person that i knew that was of my age that i had any sort of connection with in in brisbane sitting there potentially dying so that that changes anyone's perspective on the world mum and dad dad uh, who was working in sydney fly out sort of stuff um came up to brisbane in as soon as he could obviously my parents time was heavily devoted towards uh, amy's health she was in hospital for three months recovering, learning to read, write, and all that, all that good stuff that we take for granted. I was placed into a foster care location for a little while and then came back with mum and dad. But that was during the school break, the school holidays. When I entered school, I knew no one, knew that my sister was, that was on my mind, obviously quite heavily. I had no way of talking to people. I was also a fan of collecting Tarzos. And so mum to try and keep me happy and stuff would buy me bags of chips and whatever else and uh, keep, keep my mind off of what was happening with my sister which resulted in me putting on more weight good news though silver lining i have the full tarzo collection hey this <laughs> is there you go we'll, we'll bring the tone up a bit in in result is i had a lot of trouble finding and making friends and then i was overweight and introverted not talking to anyone and that made making friends worse and people talk about having anxiety to talk to new people and you don't want to talk to new people because you don't know the outcome. And, and it was just all a compounding issue. I was bullied to a spot where I was unable to walk, had two weeks off school to recover from that. Um, that's when mum said, this is ridiculous. You're, not, you're, you're at school to learn. You can't be out here with, with all these different social issues that are occurring. And this is before the face tubes and whatnot. So this is the traditional bullying and it's only getting worse. So I was changed to another school, lost a bunch of weight. And around this, and the, the reason I lost a bunch of weight wasn't because I changed schools. It was uh, unrelated. I, I decided, mum went in for an operation. I, I uh, was walking to school and noticed I lost some weight and felt really, really happy and didn't realize how much of a mindset change that had occurred. When I had lost that weight, 
And I then continued on the journey of losing more and more weight. I then saw people looking at me differently and acting differently towards me. I then thought, let's try and change around the argument. It's just like, you know, you know, you make a joke, you make a joke and someone laughs. And uh, I thought, oh, this is cool. And that, that's when I realized that comedy is a universal language. And although poo humor isn't always accepted everywhere in every uh, situation, it is also a universal language. Um, and, and I thought, well, this was great. I was able to make friends. I was able to talk to people. And uh, the same as Charlie Chaplin didn't say a word, but is loved by the world. And that is the approach that I decided was, was a sensible way, way to start knowing and talking to people. Then fast forwarding a little bit further, started up a business. I, uh, at the start, was it great, great at the, at the technical trade that I was doing, great technician, but shithouse marketer. No, no, no good at all at marketing. And uh, I didn't see that it was needed. My thought was, if you're really, really good at what you do, you should, uh, things should come to you. You're a good person. Things should come to you. There's a book from um, a Bob Berg called The Go-Giver. And uh, it talks all about giving more than what you expect to have come back and making sure that you're doing the best that you can for everyone around you. And always give out and things will come back. And there's lots of other different books that are similar, have similar messages. Just happens that I've read that one. I found later on, it doesn't matter if you've got the cure to cancer and it sits in your garage, you might as well not have found the cure to cancer. If you've got the best product, the best mindset, the best process, the best everything, quietest voice, and no one hears you, it doesn't matter. And that's where your competitors can, can beat you. And that's where you can sometimes have this mindset shift and and you, you, you start thinking, am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? How come my competitors are getting all these people? How come they're getting all these clients? They're terrible. I know the services that they're doing. I know the quality of the work they do. If you're a smash repair company and you're comparing you with someone else and you've seen the quality of the work that comes out or you're selling pies or haircuts or it doesn't matter what it is and you look at your competitor and go, how are they doing that? And it doesn't mean that they've got a better product. It just means that they're better at talking about it. I didn't see when I finished school one of my friends left school and was earning $38,000 a year. And I thought, that's pretty good, straight out of school, no qualifications. Then we'd go out having a few beers on, on, on the weekend, as, as I'm sure no one's ever done, which is a very unique thing for me. <laughs> so beer's bubbly and <laughs> full of mold <laughs> and alcohol. But uh, we, we, um, uh, well, what annoyed me more is I, I would indulge in beers, but he would indulge in all sorts of other less uh, okay substances and then rock up to work, still under the influence of those substances. And I thought, not only does he is he earning more money than I am straight out of school, and he's in doing all he's doing all this stuff. He's not great for the business. It's not great for him. And it just boggled my mind because I was uh, in a job similar to what he was doing. And I thought, how is he doing all that and earning double what I'm earning? It doesn't make any sense. And then it struck, struck me: the most important skill you can ever have is being able to market yourself, being able to talk to other people, being able to relay your message and being able to wrap that in a way that's relevant to someone else, not just being able to sell your product or say, I do IT services, being able to say, how can my business help your business? What are the pain points you have in your business? What are the things that we can help each other to build each other's business and not do it on a per hour basis? So just sit down and talk like a person. Don't be that person on LinkedIn that, that goes and talks about how they're going to sell you their service. A lot of people connect with you on LinkedIn. A lot of people send out emails. A lot of people call you up on the phone and sell you a holiday. Or as I was saying earlier, the, the SEO services, it's not the way you do it. You don't marry someone on the first day. Get to know someone. Talk to them. Become friends with them. 
if you actually know, like, and trust that person, they know, like, and trust you, everything else will just flow from there. And changing your mindset, stop worrying about what your, your competitors are doing. Don't worry about them. But know that you need to be able to talk about what your product is. And that can sometimes be more important than what your product is. And I guess it's about talking about the pain points and knowing what result you deliver back to our early discussions on sort of a results-driven versus mm. time, time per hour driven. Yes. The way your what, what the results are that you're driving for the person you're talking to can vary. Just prior to this conversation, I was talking about an example of a, a, a hair and makeup artist. She does hair and makeup for weddings and, and uh, gala events and things like that. But if she was talking to another business owner, she could just as easily use her skill sets to promote making portrait photos look better for LinkedIn profiles to elevate their business position. But if she was to talk to a business owner about how she just does uh, weddings, it doesn't sound relevant to the business owner at all. It's not going to solve any pain points for the business owner and they're not going to be uh, switched on and listening. If she just pivots the discussion just slightly and that's all about listening to what the other person is saying and listening to what their pain points are, keeping in mind we've got two ears and one mouth, they should be using that ratio listen to what the other person is saying and then go, okay, I can see how we can work together. And don't feel bad if you can't. It doesn't matter. Your product isn't great for everyone. It's okay. Well, that's the thing. You don't have to serve everybody. No. Just because you, you know, just because they're a person of a better heartbeat doesn't mean you have to serve them. Exactly. You may know someone who is a better fit for solving their problem than you might be just based on your, um, your sort of specialized skill set. That's right. It's not about serving everyone. It's about serving the right people in the right way based on the results you can give them. That's right. Focusing on them first and yep. then tailoring what you offer to solve their need, not trying to solve your need, which is, may, might be more customers or more clients, just by trying to make a promise that you might not be able to deliver on. Yep. Don't, it's, it sounds like everyone's oversaid this, don't overpromise and underdeliver. If you know the person and they know your products, if they don't want to talk to you and listen to what you have to say, don't, it's okay. Talk to someone else that has the time to listen to you. It's not always, if, even if you know you've got the best product in the world and you know that they're the best client for you in the world, I know there's a, a certain vertical that we, we don't work with anymore because they're, as a generalization, besides a very few that, we, that we've met, they, they, they don't have the same belief systems, ethics, and interest and driving motivators that, that we do. So we don't work with certain verticals because we know that they're, that what we want to see out of their business and what we know what's best for their business isn't necessarily going to be what they want. A good example would be some businesses are very um, reactive. We operate a very proactive business. We do not want something breaking. Our business makes profit when your business doesn't go down. If your business goes down, it costs us money. We want to make profit. We do not want your business to go down. Some, this vertical, which I'm not going to mention, but is is a, a vertical that very reactive. They would rather spend a thousand dollars when it breaks than a dollar a week and know that it's never going to break. And so that's a mindset that I went, we we can't. I don't like that. Yeah, and I mean, you touched on a good point. It's probably almost more important to know who you don't want to serve than who you do want to serve. Yeah, because it'll it'll save you a lot of time in the process. Yep, and know who you don't want to talk to, and know exactly who you do want to talk to so that you're able to make sure your marketing is geared towards them. The last thing you want, and uh, getting back to having that voice, whenever you've gone to a party and you look at someone, you think, oh, that, that, there's that person in the corner that I didn't talk to that you don't remember the name of because you never spoke to. 
it never happens. You never, you don't remember them. You, you remember the person, even if, can I swear? Right. Yeah. Even if there's that dickhead that just yells and is just obnoxious and you're just going, oh, they're getting on my nerves. The squeaky wheel is getting your attention right now. And even if you, you but they still get your attention. If you're on a larger set where you're, you're looking at a social media or even a, a networking meeting or something like that, unless you're creating a very, very important point of difference, if you're just telling everyone the same thing about how your business can work with their business, you're not telling anyone anything. You're telling everyone that you've got a watered down message and a product that doesn't work. It's not going to help their business out unless you're selling something that's overly commoditized. And then they're going to be able to very easily compare your product to someone else's. And then your product is just competing on price, not competing on anything else. And if you're just having a race down to the bottom, why not just charge right now at the bottom, get all the customers right now, then get out of the industry. There's no point. Make no money now, they decide that you made no money and then leave. If if everyone's racing down to the bottom, there's there's no point. It's uh, video stores, for instance. Back in my day, we used to to rent movies. (laughs) Tuesday, they would do a a dollar Tuesday. This this little tiny boutique video store opened up, had all the, the indie films and all the normal ones, but they did dollar Tuesdays and the people would flock there. Because people cheap asses, and that's fine. But Video Easy and Blockbuster went, ah, oh, Dollar Tuesdays, we'll do Dollar Tuesdays. Now, this boutique place had a significantly smaller foot stamp than what these other stores had. And so Video Easy, when you went there and they had 50 movies of the latest release, you knew you were going to get it. You're going to go out the door quicker because they had more staff. And so that then destroyed this small business that, that decided that the differentiator was competing on price. Don't compete on price. They should have competed on being like the CDs of JB Hi-Fi. They're still selling CDs. Why? Not because you're still driving around your, your Ford Laser. It's because or whatever else with the CD player. It's not because of that. It is because they're selling indie music and people are going to the store and that is a way of generating leads for them to walk past all this other stuff to get to the CDs, to get the reason to be there. And that's what they should be marketing on, not on price. They destroyed good reason for them to be in business. Yeah, you're so right. If you, if you compete on price, you're really, you know, what's stopping your competitors from charging at the price you're charging at or, or beating you yep. on that price? And then it's just a war of who's going to go to the bottom. Yep. And if you're already bigger than your competitors, you're probably already wise enough to know not to do that, which means most of the people that are trying to compete on price are smaller than their competitors, which means the competitors have more collateral, more income, more expendable resources to be able to compete on price. I'm confident that VideoEasy and Blockbuster were not making any money, but they knew in six months' time that store wouldn't be there anyway and they could jack their prices back up if Netflix didn't come around. But like, <laughs> So but they knew what they were doing and it wasn't to be competitive. It was to just cut their throat and that's what they did. Yeah, to get, to get market share and to, yep. um, you know, to build up their brand in that process. Oh, you know, they obviously got disrupted. And it's always important to have that innovation element and always trying to, you know, mm. differentiate yourself going forward. But, you know, for a while there, they definitely had a um, sort of a market hold. Yep, absolutely. Josh, I, um, a question I'd like to ask all guests is, what's your definition of the grind? The grind. Oh, here we go. So the grind, I would say the daily things that you're doing, the things that you love doing, the things that you know that just grind you up the right way. When you, when you rock into work, and you're able to get into that groove, I would be saying that's the same as getting into the grind. You're in there and you're in your element. Unlike 
those days where you're not in the grind, where you get 50 calls, 60 calls, find out something's flooded, internet turns off, electricity stops, and, and anything you touch doesn't turn to gold but poo. That is the opposite. <laughs> the grind is when you uh, have ultra focus, you're positioned with exactly the purpose of what you're doing. And when you create that list at the start of the morning, it's complete at the end of the day. It's no better feeling than that, is there? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Who's ever done that? Who's ever actually started a list at the start of the day and it fully completed at the end of the day? Wow. It's great. <laughs> Doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's such a good feeling. Oh, it's good. Absolutely. <laughs> so that's that would be my, my definition of the grind. Thank you. And um, Josh, where can people find more about you and Dorst Delivered? Great question. Well, um, it depends on what, how you like to soak up media. If you're listening to this, then podcasts would be great. We've got a podcast called Business Built Freedom. It's all around automating elements of your life. And that is something that we talk, we talk about. And as I say, elements of your life, not your business, but your life, because that's what you're in business for. Not to stay alive, but to have a life and to start living. So Business Built Freedom is all about that. The YouTube channel um, has some lifestyle elements to it, but does a touch of more technical stuff. And that's Dorks Delivered on the YouTube channel. Overall, though, all the resources, dorks.com.au. Check it out and see where you end up. Great. Josh, thanks again for hopping on the podcast. Very happy to have you here and um, yeah, looking forward to see, seeing where we all end up. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stories Behind the Grind. Please share the podcast. And if you're not already subscribed, be sure to do that right now. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could do me a quick favor and rate and review the podcast. This lets the platform know that I'm doing something right and people like the content. It'd be a huge help and I'd be really, really grateful if you could. Until next time.